0: Over the last couple weeks, Black Lives Matter protests have flooded the streets of cities across the United States and in countries around the world. Even Muncie, Indiana, a relatively small city where I work, hosted a march that drew thousands of supporters. A local paper wrote that it was perhaps one of the largest protests this city has ever seen, and almost certainly the largest in the last 20 to 30 years. Major companies and organizations are issuing statements of support for the Black Lives Matter movement, committing to take action for racial justice. Media outlets went dark to show solidarity, and almost all of the books on Amazon's top-selling nonfiction list this week are about combating racism in the modern world. So why now? How did we get here? What are the issues at the root of these protests? And will this advocacy make a difference? big questions, giant questions. But if we take some time to listen, we might start to get a sense of the answers. You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Latrell. You might have started listening to this show because of last week's episode with Dr. Fia Salter on systemic racism. So thanks for sticking around. And I wanted to continue to explore these issues for one more week. So I reached out to my friend Dion Hawkins. He's an assistant professor of communication studies at Emerson College. And in his research, he interviews people to understand important human experiences. Recently, this has taken the form of understanding the effects of police brutality on the black community. And as a coach for Emerson's speech and debate program, he also knows a thing or two about effective communication. I actually first met Dion almost 10 years ago when I started grad school at Ohio State. I had been on my college's speech team and volunteered to help coach OSU's team. Dion was a student on that team and he sure didn't need my help. (laughs) He was one of those rare people who was exceptionally talented both in the performing arts type speech events and as a debater. You don't meet many people like that. So I was excited to catch up with him and hear more about the research that he's been doing, which has clear ties to the conversations we're having, again, as a country. With something like this, it's it's hard to know exactly where to get the ball started <laughs> rolling. Yeah. Um, so I guess... Maybe one way to start is just to have you sort of summarize the kind of work that you do and the perspective you come at it from, Mm -hmm. right? Would you be comfortable just sort of giving an overview of like kind of the the work that you've done and are are working on now?
1: Um, Yeah. So funny story. Uh, I I got into uh, police brutality research um, after the summer of 2016, which would have been the summer of Philando Castile and Eric Gardner. Previously, I had been doing um, HIV related research, but it was something about that summer that really struck a nerve that within like a three month span, we had watched two uh, black men literally die and Philando's is is one of the most jarring examples that we have because the wife was in the car and the daughter was in the back seat. Um so after that I was like there has to be research about this. To my surprise, um in my field of calm, there was really was not, right? So there was research about perceptions of police after we ha- after the LA race riot. So uh at, in the 92 um, there's sociology research about theories of policing and crime and things like that. But there was a huge research void in the communication arena about police brutality in general. So I was like, okay, I'm going to make this my dissertation. So then um, my background was in health communication as well. So then I started to think to myself, or I started to recognize that like, viewing these videos was having an impact on like my ability to go about like literally life. Like it was so sad. Um, I fear encounters with the police to this day. And it's something that I knew was like a universal truth in the black community. But again, sometimes real world experiences are not always researched or backed up by data. And this was a textbook example of that. So what my dissertation sought sought to answer was one, where do Uh, black Americans get information about police brutality? How is that knowledge communicated and circulated? And then the third part was, how is that impacting mental health? So that's kind of holistically what my research seeks to answer. My current project I'm working on that I'm really excited is how how lessons uh, from family members are passed down about policing because my previous dissertation showed that social media, personal experience, and family members are the three main message and communication channels. So my long-term project is to research each of those three things to kind of get a fuller picture of the issue.
0: So I'm interested a little bit in the, the method that you use, because I think if, if a social psychologist from my world were to try to address the same kind of question, we'd come at it in a different way. So could you describe that kind of qualitative communication approach that you take, and how you use that to... to- Get insights on how this works.
1: Yeah, so absolutely. Um, so, as you said, I definitely do qualitative. So, I, I've done focus groups, but now my current method is definitely um, interviews. So, in-depth interviews, and it's actually really important that this is that you ask this question because what research we do know in come about like uh, black expression is that black people are inherently more expressive and are a lot of times more, and this this is from like slavery, right? Because stories had to be passed down orally that we couldn't read or we couldn't write. So there's well-documented research that Black people are like, a, like, like I said, like more expressive. So with that knowledge, I knew that I would be able to get way more hmm. representative quotations and like rich data and that sort of thing. And again, just because I was a part of the community, it, I just had an instinct that I was like, this needs to be Qualitative, right? Like people need to read this. Like they need to read that Black men are terrified of their phone dying when they're in a car because they need to Facebook Live an encounter with the police, right? They need to read that Black moms are sitting down right now telling their children, five year old children, like, all right, we need to have a talk. The world will not, does not see you as a child, right? So it's like those things that I think that that the quantitative methods aren't going to capture, right? Like it's it's capturing a different thing, right? And I was really steadfast on capturing the experience and the perception of that experience and what that experience means. And, and I just felt like qualitative interviewing was the best avenue for that.
0: And to read those excerpts, as someone who doesn't read a lot of that kind of research, mm-hmm. uh, I totally see the usefulness of putting those experiences in that way, right? Mm -hmm. Because in in the kind of quantitative realm, you see a chart with an average number, which is informative. But I I think maybe especially this project, or maybe lots of different things, I I totally now see the value of this qualitative. Yeah, and, and, And so
1: even even the quantitative stuff. So there's, you know, there's, there's, there's tons of research about like media portrayals of like blackness and how it has you know been it slowly made people afraid of like violent black men the angry black woman black children are viewed as adults quicker but again a lot of that is based off of like a scale and i'm like this is not capturing i don't think what's really happening right so so like you said i i just think for me it was a It was about specifically what I wanted to do. And it was like, I realized that that no one else was really giving the black community a place to have it be validated in a way that the general public would view as like acceptable. So I was like, okay, then I need to be the person to do that then.
0: It it also makes the issues harder to ignore, I find Mm -hmm. in in reading about in reading those like pull quotes from those interviews, because I worry that there's a tendency to if we think about the quantitative data it becomes abstract and numbers and we can easily go, well, is this really as big of a problem as we can sort of whittle down the numbers however we want. But when you read those excerpts, you go, I can't, I cannot counter argue that experience. Yeah.
1: And, and, and and like, and I say this to people all the time because people say like, you know, you have such jarring quotations. I'm like, the scary thing is, is there's dozens of hundreds of more of quotations that I could have used. Right. Like that was one of the, like, beauties of my data, but then also one of the most disheartening things as someone that does constantly engage in the interviews. It's like, it's great from a research perspective that I'm able to reach saturation in rich data. But I'm like, as a researcher, when you consistently hear people saying like, oh yeah, I can't let my phone die because I'm afraid that then no one will ever know what happens to me. It's like, that is like, that's rough. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I completely, I completely agree. And even with um, police brutality, is, it's really important for me, too, is that we're consistently making sure that, like, we keep the, the victims or the experience center. Um, because, you know, there's a very easy way for conversations to happen that lose sight of the fact that, like, OK, people are dead, people are dying, and black people are afraid to die. And I just don't know if surveys capture that experience.
0: If I'm remembering right, you talked a little bit too about the media frames. So what yes. you just said reminded me that you know part of the problem with this specific issue is that we don't get to have interviews from some people that are at the center of these things. Egg.
1: Bingo! Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, because how, how do you? Is there a way to account for that, or 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 like?
1: So I think social media has completely morphed the way that media framing. Works our media frame as a theory. To be honest, is because, um, especially for the Black community, my research indicates that especially Black millennials, we're going to Twitter and Facebook for news. We're not going to CNN. We're not going to local news channels because we don't feel like they're they're capturing what's actually happening. Right? They're going to spin the information. Um, They're not going to highlight what's actually happening. Um, And I think right now is a perfect example. It's it's weird though. The media has been. I will give the media credit for their coverage of what's happening right now. I think they've been pretty transparent and and honest and vocal about the level of police brutality that has been happening. But I think that it's telling that they have chosen to show this now that we're seeing more white victims of it. And I think that's also very important. Um, I don't think they magically decided to start showing more police brutality footage. It's the demographic is... Clearly, Black people are still killed more by police. We we know that the research is, that's true. But we have not seen this amount of police brutality recorded and broadcasted, inflicted on white Americans. And I think that is subconsciously driving a lot of the media coverage.
0: Yeah, there's a little bit of a wording like, well, now, hey, wait a minute.
1: <laughs> right, right. It's like, a, oh, this really does happen. And like us, we're in the Black community are like, well, welcome. We're so glad yeah. that you finally have joined the fight. Glad you're here, but- Uh, we've known this for uh, centuries now. So yeah, right. It's like, it's, it's like they're shocked. And and, and to be fair, there are some very jarring videos, like the old man being pushed to the ground, like by Buffalo PD, even as someone who researches this and like have read countless stories, like that one, I'm like, oh my God, that is, there's just no defense. And then like for the response to be that the union told the police officers to all resign. I'm like, oh, so, we've learned, you've learned nothing in the past week and a half. Like, I'm like, okay, great. And this is why, (laughs) this is why people are still protesting because there's still no accountability.
0: Just to pull back a little bit to get back to the media frames thing. Could you define what that means? Media framing? Yeah. So for people who haven't heard of it.
1: Absolutely. So it's how media kind of portrays or chooses to cover certain issues, right? And so i'm not I'm not a rhetorician, but a rhetorician will be more interested in the language used, right? So are there protesters? are they using looters? are they using rioters right? So that is all a subconscious thing. What pictures of the protests are they choosing to show? Are they going to show white people throwing bricks through a window or are they only showing black people throwing bricks through a window? How is it covered? how often? so it's all like how how the media chooses what word what language they use um so it's yes, yeah, it's just all about how the media is kind of portraying or or showing whatever is happening.
0: To that point, I actually just a couple days ago, I gave a talk on some of the stuff that I do for a, like a local group on Zoom. And I was looking for images from protests in the last mm-hmm. week to use as examples to show kind of the kinds of messages people are trying to communicate with signs and stuff. And I was struck that what I kept finding were predominantly pictures of white people hands holding mm-hmm. signs, mm-hmm. Yeah. which, you know, you could interpret and say, well, maybe this protest is is different and it's it's recruiting more people. But there's a media framing account of that too, of saying, well, which, which are the images that are now so striking that they're going to show up on the right. front
1: page? I, I will say, I will say that I do think from someone that, so I have teach social movements as well. So from someone that understands movements and understands the subject at hand, and from someone who's been boot, like on the ground protesting, there are more white people out. Mm-hmm. There are. I don't know if that's because there's, people have nothing else to do but protest because COVID. I do think that's something that people are not talking about. Um, I don't think there's magically, well, I do think there are more white people appalled. I do. Um, but I think that no one's talking about the fact that like these people may have protested before they didn't have the ability to, the time or or anything. And it's like, I think, this is a perfect storm that has created a world where like everyone is like, okay, no, this is this is inhumane. But again, I, I agree that media framing, when I think that when white people have seen other white people doing this work, it's either an internal guilt or of like, oh well, oof, I think I should go out there and I should also do it. Or it's a, oh, I didn't know they felt strongly about this issue. We've never talked about it because we've never had to talk about it as friends. So I'm gonna text them and say, Hey, can I join you? Right. And, and so I do, I definitely think that that's changing. The media framing of these protests are, are definitely different than let's say like the Baltimore uprising. Right? Mm. Yeah, for sure.
0: Can we talk a little bit about um, impressions of police? So in, in another interview, I heard you talk about, Oof, you, yeah. you framed it very nicely as people living in two different worlds. We do. Yeah. And I, I, You know, um, I will acknowledge that was not something that I had really grappled with until very recently. And feeling Mm -hmm. like when I think about like what the police meant growing up, it was very, you know, rosy, white picket fence, manicured lawn. The police come to make sure that you're safe. But there are other impressions of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'll give. So, yes, absolutely. So the first thing is, is, yeah, we're socialized completely differently. It's two different worlds. I was raised very early on, I'll never forget, five years old. My father sat me down and said, you know, you cannot do the same things as your white friends. If you're ever in a car with me and I am pulled over by a police officer, this is what you do. You put your hands up, you put your hands on a dashboard that he was like, Don't move. You cannot give them a reason to escalate a situation. And and again, remember we're talking about like like I said, five. So we're in a black community of are socialized to avoid police at all cost period and i just you know growing up i realized that my white friends didn't feel that way and in my research even reinforced that idea it's like we it's literally like two different worlds like you were taught that police were on your side you were taught that the police are the people you call that when you need help we were taught never call the police unless it is a last resort and even at last resort you run the risk of being a victim and it's really important to hit the impression of policing I, and i and i every time i talk about this issue i make it to hit home these three points one is that the modern day framework of policing stems from slavery right so plantation owners their skill set was capturing right so when slavery was abolished they didn't magically lose that skill set so plantation owners literally became sheriffs And they hired other plantation owners. They hired people who worked on their, white people who worked on their plantation. So like this idea that police were always there for the people, is just not true. Even up North, so I'm in Boston where the first police force was our, like tax funded police force was established. And even here, it was never about crime. White, poor, uh, working class, uh, black people and immigrants realized that they had inhumane and unfair working conditions and they started to protest and they started to demand more fair wages and more fair working conditions. And then magically that we needed a police force, right? We needed someone to come in to curb this civil unrest, this social disorder. So again, when people have this idea that like policing was a response to crime, it's, it's not true. Third thing, and this is something that I've discovered over the past two weeks that i don't think people are talking about. So we in the black community encounter police more, right? We encounter them more negatively. We have more stories circulating about policing, or we've had negative personal encounters with police, right? White people almost never have this situation. Or if they do have an encounter with the police officer, it's pleasant. So then I started to think, I'm like, okay, there has to be a larger disconnect here. Like, okay, so where are white people getting their information about police? Pop culture. Every time that there is a media portrayal of of law enforcement, it's always positive. Cops, Life PD, Law & Order, any of them, right? Even if a cop messes up in these shows, it is Always, they always have the ability to reconcile. They always have the ability to atone. So, I, I, as I talk to my black scholars, I'm like, "We're not just combating personal experience. We're combating literally like decades of like pop culture propaganda, like pro-cop propaganda." And and that's a conversation that that no one is having. But I'm like, I do think that is one of the root causes. Because if I've never had a negative encounter, if none of my friends or families never had a negative encounter, where else am I getting? The information, pop culture, and to this day, I cannot tell you a single program that I have watched hmm. that holds cops accountable. There's even instances on TV where cops are corrupt, but they're like, "Oh, they did it for the right reasons." It's like, <laughs> okay, well, yeah. Um. So yeah.
0: Uh, gr- growing up uh, to that point, too, the officer friendly program, I imagine, also is is related to these same things, where it is. You know, people will say that the intentions are to create a favorable image of police, so that people feel comfortable with police. I I never thought until recently about how widespread programs like those were. I don't I don't know if this comes up at all, but
1: yeah, I I don't know. I'm trying to think back. Did I even encounter? I don't even. Now that you say that, I do remember having conversations about like police officers coming in elementary school. But the thing is, though, Andy, is that before I encountered that cop, I've probably had a conversation. Mm. Right. So, like, that's not my first talk about police. Um, so, yeah, no, we, we've definitely been socialized with pro cop propaganda that, and it's brilliant. I will give the, I, whoever came up with Cops, that show is, it was brilliant branding because. For so long, that was white people's perception of police. And now there's Live PD, which is, that that show is wild. If you've never seen that show, it mm-hmm. is. They, they get, they, you literally see cops as they're patrolling. I'm like, why is this appropriate? Like, why are we watching cops, like, ram into people's homes? Do you get what I'm saying? Like, it's, mm-hmm. it, it, it normalizes horrific behaviors. And it also creates this image that, like, you know, cops are always the heroes. And, and and that's what we're fighting against in the black community. It's like, you know, I always tell people to watch um when they see us, um, because that's in a black community, that's what happens to us, right? Like white people watch cops. It's like, nah, you need to watch thirteenth and when they see us because you think cops is the reality and it may be for you, but for us when they see us as a reality.
0: So these this dual reality, we we could maybe call it of, of this if we sort of move that into the domain of advocacy, and and I, I think you do some work on like political communication yeah, or, yeah. or have some background in it, so if we could talk about like what are the roads for effective communication about this? Because what I'm hearing is that one of the challenges will be that there's it's easy to deny experience when it conflicts with your own, right? Right. right. So that that's one roadblock. But but even to open it up, what do you what do you know there?
1: I'll hit the policy change first, um, and then I'll go into what I think on like the communication side is really important. So the problem with police brutality data collection or research is that law enforcement offices are not required to publish any data about police violence. So we have no idea how many people are actually harmed by police officers because they're not required to report it federally. There's not even an incentive right now to report it opposite is true though. So like if I harm a police officer, you bet you bet your bottom dollar that has to be documented. But if a police officer harms me, it's not. So with that research void, a group came together and they did this huge project and they studied a hundred precincts um, across the country. And so from that, they have decided kind of eight policies. It's called Eight Can't Wait. So it's a list and taken together of these eight policies, it has decreased police violence by 72%. And so so I know for sure one is to ban chokeholds, require de-escalation is another one. I could probably pull them up actually. So ban chokeholds, require de-escalation, require warning without shooting, exhaust all other means before shooting. And this is one that's really important because the conversations we're having in the black community is saying like, okay, even if this person is a criminal, even if this person stole something, even if this person did this, why is the answer shooting? Like, and again, that's not even protocol, right? Like cops have a use of force continuum. It's like, there's no world where that should be the answer. So that's really important. Um, duty to intervene. So that's a really important one is if there's a cop with you, they should be obligated to intervene. If they feel like you're using excessive force, no shooting at moving vehicles, Require a use of force continuum and require comprehensive reporting. So, those eight things together are what we're really pushing. Um, and I'm so Indianapolis, Indiana, where I am from, the mayor yesterday came out and said that he is going to mandate that all things, all of these, and this is happening. Uh, there's a small precinct in Pennsylvania that's doing it. So, on the policy side, there are luckily concrete things that we know. For me, what I am really interested in on the communication side long term is, as I talked about before, we know that the African-American community is like more expressive. So that means more hand gestures. That means more elevations of tone, more elevation of volume, etc. White cops perceive all of that as violent they will see a Black woman raising her voice as inherently defiance, right? And it's like, okay, well, no, it's a communicative di- communication difference. And what my research indicates is that this is a very traumatic experience. So your body is literally going to have a different, in, like literally, there are different chemicals in your body that happens when your body encounters a traumatic encounter. So if my body perceives this encounter as traumatic, on top, Of my natural communicative behaviors as a black person, that is a recipe for disaster because the cop is never going to understand that I'm not trying to be aggressive. It's just my I'm trying to control and suppress a lot. And and this is well documented, too. Like cops respond first towards accents of any kind, particularly Caribbean accents, though, and even people with disabilities. Right. Individuals with uh, cerebral palsy have been reported of police brutality because cops were like, oh, I thought they were drunk. I'm like, "Okay, right. But like, why is there no again? Why? Why is that lead to brutality, though? Like if someone is defying you, why do cops get complete reign and autonomy to decide like, oh, well, you've disrespected me enough to where I need to yank you out of your car? Um, Hard of hearing individuals, people with deafness, um, when they try to do sign language, cops. Uh, escalate situations so it's it's and this is when I say the communication side of me is really interested in these things because like sure of course we need the policy changes absolutely it can't wait needs to wholeheartedly be the priority but after that there needs to be a talk about training and a talk about what competency looks like and about if you're going to police people that are different than you you need to understand that they're inherently communicative differences. Because there's no world where cops should not be able to de-escalate situations verbally.
0: So that's a lot about the communication between people in these interactions. But in yeah, terms of yeah. like communication for social change, like these, these protests oh. that we've been seeing in the last uh, week or so. Yeah. Do we do we feel like those are a road to change or or what has to happen for that to be a road to change?
1: I, I do think these protests are a road to change. Absolutely, I think what's happening. I I, I was so I, like I said, I'm teaching right now, and I said like this feels like our civil rights movement, right? Like this feels like like something about the case right now about George's case is like a bloody Sunday feel. Like it is like people watched it and were like, enough is enough. We have to do something. So I do think. Again, I think what's happening is the demographic has changed a little bit, right? Like it's no longer just black people saying Black Lives Matter. It's no longer just black people marching. It's coalitions of all types of people, all types of ages, all types of socioeconomic status. I think the message is more cohesive now. I think the A Can't Wait does a brilliant job of telling people like, okay, protesting is great. We've raised awareness. The lack of awareness wasn't ever really the issue it's a, all right, what are the policy things that we can change? And and yeah, I think the protests have disrupted enough and made enough people uncomfortable to where now they're saying, okay, at least we got to bring these people to have a seat at the table because before we weren't even invited to the table, right? Child, we, we, we weren't invited to the damn building. That was like, your building's over there. You can't come to the table. Ain't none of this shit for you. I'm sorry, I'm going to Okay. Ain't none of this stuff for you. Now it's like, okay, y'all, we do have to reconcile that, like this country is systemically racist, like which is a first step because the amount that I've seen about that is mind blowing. Like I, I can't, I can't express enough. So if we're talking about communicating to the public, right? Like Nickelodeon shutting off their programming for eight, almost nine minutes, and like playing like a black screen—that's huge. I'm sure there were tons of children. Like, what the heck is happening? Sesame Street, CNN having a town hall on systemic racism featuring Elmo today, Amazon having a Black Lives Matter banner, Apple Music stopping streaming. You know what I mean? Like there was so much more happening this go around and this last week and a half publicly conversations that we're having publicly that were not being had. And again, I think what's happening too is that white people are having conversations with colleagues, friends, and family that they haven't had before that they haven't had to have before, or they may not have known that their colleagues and friends had unconscious bias. Right. Like, cause again, you don't have to talk about race. So now that everything's in the forefront, let's say I'm white. And my uh, brother says like, Oh, well, those protesters blocked my way to the street. And I'm like, well, they should have. And he's like, well, wait a minute. That's probably the first time we've ever had that conversation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Y- you mentioned the, uh- Nickelodeon and Sesame Street and how these messages are getting to kids. I've seen a lot of conversation on Twitter about like about white families being like, well, how do I talk to my kid about these things? And mm-hmm. the striking thing is how that butts up against what you find in those interviews that you have about the, right. the, the common experience for black kids to to face these sorts of things at an, at an age that that white families would go. I would never talk to my child I would about never. race. Right, yeah. right,
1: right, right. It's like I can't talk to my five-year-old about race. It's like, no, you can when people say things like that i'm like you don't tell them the whole story right <laughs> like you don't like you don't stick your kid down and be like oh well let's start all the way back from the beginning right like but you absolutely can say there was a time in this country where people took other people and, and and put it in a context that they understand, right? Like you can say, like you know, your you don't, don't mention the don't don't use a black friend as an as the example. That's not a good thing. But like you can say, like okay, you know your friend Sally, right? Sally has blue eyes, and eye color is a perfect example. Eye color or or uh, hair color, kids understand that, hmm. and say like, well, there used to be a time where you know we would take all people with certain skin color, and they had to work for us. Like that is a foundation you can say. And kids also are naturally inquisitive. So kids are going to ask. And it's the opposite, I think, is true. Like I think when kids see things and they're they're like, especially down the world of social media and like TV and YouTube, race conversations are happening. You're just not the one having it. Your child's learning about race somewhere. Trust me. Hmm. They, they are definitely learning about it somewhere. Whether or not you're having that conversation is, is up to you. But they're going to learn about it. And if people listen to this podcast, there are tons of resources now to indicate like conversations that teachers have gathered, psychologists have gathered to say like, this is an appropriate conversation to have at this age. And I think for me, the thing that the white community has to understand, like you said, we're having the conversations in the black community before, definitely before puberty, right? Because the whole thing is like, once puberty hits, you, the world's going to view you as a man and a woman, not as a boy or as a girl. So it's like you do need to be having these conversations earlier because it's much easier to teach someone how to be anti-racist than to teach an adult how to unlearn racism.
0: Uh, this may be a little bit of a, a hard pivot, but I, I think it's relevant if we pull this into the realm of academia and how academics mm-hmm. have thought about race historically and mm-hmm. so you, you draw on critical race theory in mm-hmm. some of the work that you do which t- frankly is is not a perspective that I'm super familiar with w- would you mind just mm-hmm. sort of walking through like what that is where it came from yeah. and why we need it
1: yeah yeah absolutely so critical race theory actually um, has its uh, kind of foundations in law and education and to put it simply it basically just makes the argument that especially when it comes to blackness in this country if you are going to Analyze any subject that that has a black population. You have to understand that race is probably the center factor. From there, it has expanded to kind of you know talk about like Asian populations and Hispanic and Latino populations. So like the intersection of like ethnicity and racism is really key for like white Latinos or Afro Afro uh, Latinx individuals. Critical race is starting to be applied really heavily there. Mm. Um, So yeah, it's just it's just the idea that. um, that, you know, race is a, is a, this country is built on race. To ignore that in research is to be doing whatever topic you're doing a disservice and to be doing the community a disservice, because we know that the country is built on racism. So why would we not take that into account in everything that we're doing with our research?
0: It highlights issues of who's doing this research, right? Who's
1: who's doing the, so who's doing the research? Why are you doing the research? So now, so here's the thing with me is I'm going to be incredibly frustrated if there's and I and I, I there are some great things about the academy. There are some things that I cannot stand. I know that there's going to be a flood of police brutality research now, right, right, and not because people have cared about it. No, they don't. It's because it's go, it's going to be the hot button issue. They know that publishers are going to want to be like, oh, well, we need this, and you need grant money. Bingo, you need grant money, right? And again, it's a, it's who you're researching, right? And it's like, I don't know if a white person could do what I'm doing and is going to yield the same data.
2: Hmm.
1: When you go into qualitative interviews, it's like, there's probing, there's rapport, there's cultural references like I cannot count the number of times that like I've laughed at a joke or I've been able to probe with like a cultural context that like a white person's not going to have. And to be fair, if I were to be put in a different cultural setting, I also wouldn't be able to do that, right? Like if I wanted to research like white suburban mom's perception of race, I may not be the best person to be the principal <laughs> investigator, right? I may need to find someone in that community that could especially like i said qualitative interviewing that that's crucial and so when i've been on projects with people or i've listened to interview transcripts and i'm like oh dear you let a lot slide there hmm. that is not yeah so yeah i i think that you hit something really important there who's doing the research and who who are they researching is really really incredibly important
0: it it struck me in when you were talking about the critical race theory approach is just that if you're having people do this research who are from, who, who have privileged identities, mm-hmm. they are maybe less likely to think about race as a critical factor, right? right. And, which, and ignore that that's central to the experience.
1: Which to me, if you're going to research something like this, that is absolutely ludicrous, right? Like to research police brutality without some aspect of a critical race component, you're not researching police brutality, you may be researching something, which is great, but you can't say you're researching police brutality because you're not.
0: But are there domains where you would say, ah, you could, you don't need the, the critical no,
1: race? No, not, not, not researching this. I don't, I don't.
0: This or a- any topic I'm saying, any topic about communication or experience? I don't,
1: but, but I'm a critical scholar, right? So like, that is a fundamental difference, a paradigm difference that I have than a lot of colleagues, right? I'm like, those nuances are important. And so for me, I, I, that is something as a black scholar, I do think that race is a constant. It is not going away. Uh, as a black man, I can assure you that my race has impacted every aspect of my life, job, uh, whatever relationships. And it's like, we know that race is a factor to consistently ignore that in research is to be doing, again, a disservice to the community. And you're perpetuating the problem, to be honest. Like if people are researching things that have racial components without a critical race component, you're complicit, right? Because you're not doing actively anti-racist work. Yeah, don't, don't do the work if you're not willing to put, don't do it, then why do it, mm-hmm. right? Like why do it? Because if it's to fulfill some like white guilt or, or whatever, don't do it. Because there's a black scholar that is, could be out there doing the same work or better yet, as white academics who are listening to this, if you do want to research these things, you might want to include black academics on your projects because our view is going to be inherently different. And that's fine. It's just make sure you're making this allyship is making the space for other people. And this is a textbook example. So like you shouldn't say like, oh, I don't think that I need a critical race. It's <laughs> like, well, that's not your determination. So I respect your opinion, but you're wrong.
0: I, I've so. seen some uh, conversation on Twitter about white academics, that the criticism being that if you're a white scholar studying race and racism, it's not the same as activism, right? It, it's Either, not. But it, it can feel you go, well, look at the good that I uh, look how interested I am and, 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 and trying to push forward solutions. But, you publish a paper in a journal and fifty people read it. H- hard to say that that's the same thing,
1: right? And 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 the big difference too is I I tell my white academic friends too. I'm like your difference is you never have to justify what you're researching. Hmm. You are looked at as this social this beacon of social justice that is down to ride for the cause. I want to uplift a, a community that's oppressed. I cannot tell you the amount of times I've told people I research police brutality. And it's like, it's a look, right? They're like, oh, oh, of course you do. Yeah, of course you do. And it's like, I know anything I submit has to be 10 times better because it's unorthodox, because it's controversial, because it makes people uncomfortable, right? So it's like, I, I, I would academics we need white allies. So let's be very clear, right? There has to be white allyship in order for there to be equality and progress in this country. What we don't need is white allies fulfilling, like I said, like a social justice fantasy and saying like, oh, well, I wrote this paper. So I did the work. No, you didn't. You didn't. And it's offensive as us as black scholars, because we're like, okay, your work stops. When you reached an impact factor, right? Like you don't touch that again. You don't touch that article. You may not mm. touch that topic ever again. You wrote about it because it was in the news and you knew it would get to a pub. I don't have that luxury, right? Like I am researching this because it is life or death for my community. I am researching this because I've seen police brutality firsthand. So it's like, no, we're not, it's not the same. And as an ally, if you're a true ally, you mm-hmm. should be willing to listen to why it's not the same and say like, okay, I get it. So sorry. How can I help? What could I be doing? In academia too, there's like this idea that like, once you've reached a certain amount of publications or whatever, it's like, okay, my work is done. And it's like, that is textbook privilege, right? Like your ability to say, I am done researching police brutality or racism because I've moved on to another project is an epitome of what privilege looks like. You can you can walk away from this whenever you want, and your checks still cash the same, your life is not changed. I don't have that luxury, right? So it's like I don't have the luxury of saying police brutality research is exhausting, so I have to be done. Mm. I, I don't. And and a lot of black academics have entered the academy with research ideas that like we're passionate about. Sure. But it's ideas that we're passionate about because it's our lived experience. No one else is going to do it. And for me, it's like, I would rather me do it than a white person deciding that they, that they've magically become this social justice warrior. And it's like, oh, I'm going to capture the black experience on police brutality. It's like, why are you doing it though? Right?
0: I worry a little bit, too, about the protests now. Like you said, it's sort of a perfect storm. And yes, it's great that we're seeing lots of allies stand up. But when yeah. the jobs come back, when the news moves on to something else, are we going to see the same level of, of continued support for change? Anyhow, well, just to, to get us to start wrapping up, I guess, I'm curious, what sort of research are you working on now? Can you give us a, some overview of kind of where, where your research is going?
1: Um, yeah, so so research-wise, I'm currently working on the family communication about police brutality project, um, and then my project after that is I really want to capture Black women's experience because what I'm finding is even through my interviews about family communication, moms are saying different things than dads, um, wives are saying different things than husbands, and so I'm like, okay, a part of qualitative research is recognizing where a difference lies and like understanding why there is a difference. like, why you are experiencing that phenomenon differently. So yeah, that is, that is what I'm doing right now.
0: I I have one more question, which I I, just curious, when you do qualitative research, and you're um, giving quotations from people, you provide names for those people, but they're pseudonyms, right? They're pseudonyms. Mm -hmm. How do you come up with the pseudonyms?
1: Usually, it's like, family. So I'll either like, or, or like, it's so funny you say this. Like, I will use people that I know in real life and just give a different name. So, like, but I have to make sure that those people are never anywhere in the study. Does that make right. sense? So, like, mm-hmm. if I interview my brother, or or if I use my brother's name rather, I have to make sure that my brother wasn't actually interviewed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that no one could accidentally exactly, mistake that
1: exactly. Person. So no one could accidentally mistake. Yeah.
0: And, and is it just? Is there any amount of fitting a name to? Or is nah, it, a pull from my head? I, I just do it <laughs> randomly,
1: yeah. I just do that, it
0: randomly. It's a part of the process that we never have to do. And I just <laughs> yeah. saw that and I thought, where the heck? I have a hard enough time coming up with fake names for exam questions.
1: <laughs> yeah. Now, some people, again, some people, not everyone does in qual research, mm-hmm. but to me, it's just so odd. I'm like, okay, well, a person clearly said this. And for me, it's important, too, because... I was trained in the way it's like, all right, so it's also important for you to keep track of who is saying what, right? Right. So if like I say, Charlie, if Charlie says something about Twitter, I need to also be tracking what Charlie says about viewing images on Twitter and how he views, perceives that it's triggering. So Mm. I don't have that ability if I don't put a name to it, right? So even as the reader, I need to be keeping track of, what the person is saying holistically throughout the entire study because that's how that person gave me their experience. So like if you're in the qual is all about making sure you're accurately representing the experience and like member checking like this this is what you meant like is is this is what this is what you said this is what i understand it to mean but this is about how you perceive it so I'll just make sure that we're on the same page. And so like it helps with that process keeping a keeping a like a, a name attached.
0: Mm-hmm. And as a consumer, it 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 helps that part that I was saying makes that qualitative stuff so much more compelling, yep. because it does hang on to that idea that this is a person. These are not just numbers that we're comparing.
1: Exactly. And that's really yeah. important for me too, right? Is that like, especially when we're talking about like the cases, like, uh, like in the dissertation research or current research, I can't express enough how much Trayvon Martin shifted the culture of this country but it's so bizarre because he wasn't a victim of police brutality. But every study that I've ever done has always said Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice. So Tamir Rice was the 12-year old. Mm-hmm. So when they're talking about those people, for example, it's like, yeah, so that's why I'm really it's really hits me. It's like, okay, well, you need to give a name to your respondents as well because mm. they could be that person at any time. And it's so messed up to say, but like, that, it could.
0: Well, Thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk about all of this. I appreciate you to running through the, the whole yeah. part of it. Yeah, of course. Of course.
1: Yeah, no. And no, I, I thank you so much for giving me the platform. Um, I am hopefully, uh, not hopefully optimistic. What's the word? mm cautiously optimistic about we are we are entering in a, a new wave of change in this country particularly related to policing um, I'm hoping that people will finally like acknowledge that it's this whole bad apples bunch we got to get rid of that it's like no the culture' the culture's bad the structure of policing is inherently bad and fine we all know that like it, it, we all, we all know there's there's a problem why do we not work on the solution and i think we finally got to the point in this country where we're like okay we need to figure out a solution luckily there's research to tell us what the solution is just gotta follow (laughs) it so yeah
0: (laughs) let's hope so and and hope that it doesn't fade right that that it's incumbent on us to to keep it moving
1: absolutely absolutely nice
0: well thank you so much
1: yeah thank you
0: Thank you so much to Dion for talking about his research and the issues that it speaks to. Check out the show notes for more about Dr. Hawkins and the topics we talked about. And actually, a few days after we recorded that conversation, Dion followed up with some news that was hot off the presses. The TV show Cops has been canceled. Honestly, the bigger surprise to me was that they were still making new episodes of Cops. There have been 32 seasons. The 33rd season was scheduled to debut today, but the Paramount Network released a statement last Tuesday saying, Cops is not on the Paramount Network, and we don't have any current or future plans for it to return. I also just want to quickly thank my friend Erin McIntyre. The sounds of protests that you heard in this episode are from footage she took from the peaceful protests in Columbus, Ohio, where I live. She graciously let me use the audio and says, I do want it to be known that what is happening is extremely peaceful. When it is said that the Women's March was completely nonviolent, it should be said that the Women's March was allowed to be undisturbed. while the Black Lives Matter protest has been met with violence by the police. And finally, in unrelated news, I'm starting to explore options to provide transcripts of opinion science for people who are deaf or hearing impaired, or for people who just prefer to read these things. As of right now, a transcript of last week's episode with Fia Salter on systemic racism and a transcript of today's episode are available. Check out the show notes for the links. Since this is an independent podcast that I run by myself, though, I'm still figuring out how to keep doing this in a cost-effective and time-efficient way, so please reach out to me if you have ideas, but it's definitely something that I'd like to keep doing. To learn more about this podcast, visit opinionsciencepodcast.com or follow us at Opinion SciPod on Facebook or Twitter. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts, and keep up with our weekly episodes. And please, if you like and support this show, leaving a nice review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes is an easy and effective way to help the show grow. In the meantime, I'll look forward to seeing you next time on Opinion Science. Bye.